We're going to look at 1 Samuel 30. If you would turn there, 1 Samuel 30. And we're going to title the message, The Road to Recovery. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read 19 verses. And it says, And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein and they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. And so David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. And then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. And so David went, he and the six hundred men that were with him, came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men, for two hundred abode behind that were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in the field, and brought him to David, and gave him bread, and he did eat, and they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs, and two clusters of raisins, and when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites, and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah, and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire." And David said to him, Can you bring me down to this company? And he said, I can if you swear unto me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master. I'll bring thee down to this company. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even until the evening of the next day. There escaped not a man of them, save four hundred young men, which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. Let me just briefly summarize what has led up to chapter 30 and, you know, why, in other words, why was David in Ziklag? What what was he doing here at the beginning of this chapter? So he'd been running for Saul for years, him and his men, and I think it had worn out 
both him and his men physically, but not only physically, I think it had worn them out spiritually. And David just was not really doing that good spiritually. And we have a good sign or an inkling of that. If you would just briefly turn back to chapter 27. You're in 30, just turn back to chapter 27 and look what we have here. And this is how he gets into Ziklag. And it said, chapter 27, verse 1, and David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. And David arose and passed over with the 600 men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. God had repeatedly given David a promise that he would not perish from the hand of Saul. And I mean, it happened repeatedly. It came through Samuel. It came through Jonathan. It came through his wife, Abigail. She knew it. And it came through Saul himself. All of them had prophesied that David one day would sit on the throne in the place of Saul. And David, not only that, he had repeatedly seen God's faithfulness in delivering him from the hand of Saul. And always that happened whenever David sought God's direction. He told him what to do. And every time he was faithful to deliver him. That's, you read all those chapters coming up to that. That's what happened. But I think now David's weary at this point and he's wanting a break. It's been seven years. Him and his men have been fleeing from Saul for seven years. What does he do? He compromises and he makes friends with the world. That's basically who Achish represents the king of Gath. He's a Philistine, and the Philistines were enemies of God and of Israel. Two years earlier, we need to remember this, this wasn't his first trip to Achish to deal with this king, because two years earlier, if you remember, when he fled, he fled to Achish, and Achish, they were going to do him in there. Like, isn't this David? Isn't this the guy that's killing all that? And what did he do? He acted like he was a crazy man. And God, in his grace, allowed him to escape from him then, didn't he? And he went to the cave of Ajalom, and when he went there, the prophet Gad, what did he tell David? You don't need to stay outside of Judah. His instructions from the prophet, from God, was you go back into Judah, David. That was God's word to David. But now he's weary, wanting to break, and here he is. He's making friends with the world, and that's a temptation for all of us, isn't it? That he's not seeking the Lord He's reasoning things out. He's not looking at the promises of God. And a lot of times we're tempted to do things that way, aren't we? In so many different ways. We say, well, I haven't prayed today, but I just need time to relax. You know, and oh, look, chop's on. And so what ends up taking the precedence? Or, you know, you haven't read my Bible. I haven't talked to the Lord, but, you know, I haven't read the headlines on the Internet either. And, you know, I'm just saying it happens to all of us, doesn't it? It's just easy to substitute that. Or I know I should trust the Lord is my healer. But right now, the way things are with my head, I can't even think straight. And one pill will take care of all of that. Is it easier to trust the Lord and his promises and not to lean to our own understanding or to look at our circumstances we're in, we're tired, whatever, and just be like, hey, what would any reasonable person do? And God will understand. I mean, that's just the way things kind of work. David wasn't really committing any gross sin. So he wasn't committing adultery at this point. He wasn't in idolatry. He wasn't worshiping any false gods. He's just gotten comfortable with the world. 
just gotten comfortable with the world and it put him in a compromising situation that led to a couple of crises in his life. He was God's child, okay? And God sovereignly, even though David was making a mistake here, but God sovereignly brought him through these crises by his grace, and he taught David, and through David, he teaches us a very valuable lesson. He comes to Achish and professed his loyalty to him, and he says, hey, look, I don't want to crowd you here in your city where you live. Just give me some land. Could you give me some land? And Achish, he liked David. He really did. And he said, sure, David, here's some land in the south named Ziglag. Just go there and enjoy it. And so David was there for a year and a half. And what he did is he used that land. Now, he's still got a heart for Israel. He's still loyal to Israel and his God. So he, from Ziglag, he launched these raids on Philistine cities. He's taking care of the Philistines. And when he did that, it says he wiped them out. He didn't leave anybody that could say a word to snitch on him to Achish. And was taking spoils from them. And then he would appear before Achish. Where have you been? He's lying to him. He says, I've been doing all this destruction to Israel. And Achish is like, good boy, you know, you're coming right along. And he really liked him. When it's time for Achish and the Philistines to have a major battle against Saul and Israel, Achish is like, I feel like I can trust David. And he put him in the rear of his army. And the lords of the Philistines, they're like, when they find out about that, they're like, what are you doing, Achish? Are you an idiot? Don't you remember the song that they used to sing about David, that Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands? And like, hey, Achish, don't you remember who do you think those ten thousands were? They were Philistines. And he'll turn on us and fight for Saul, be like a fifth column. And they're telling him, would you just wise up? And send him home. And so Achish is like, that's what I got to do, David. But he's practically apologizing to David. He's like, I've never found any evil in you. You walked wisely amongst us. And that's what he wanted to do. But whether you realize it or not, David, through that situation there, his compromise with the world had put him in a no-win situation. He was really in a crisis. Because here's the thing. If he would have refused to fight against Israel... They would have wiped out his 600 men and him in no time. The Philistines would have. But on the other hand, what if he'd have done what the lords were afraid of? What if he had fought against the Philistines and helped Saul defeat him? I'm telling you, Saul would have still killed him. And he'd have had him in his grasp because Saul had never changed his mind. He never did change his mind. So you've heard of there's a win-win situation. This situation was a no-win, no-win and David's really in a hard place. But God, in his grace, did what? He intervened and delivered David through all that. When they told him to go home, really, that was kind of like God getting him out of a hard way. And I'm sure David came out of that. He is like breathing a sigh of relief. He's like, man, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know how I was going to get out of that. He didn't know, though, what was waiting for him at home. Here's what we have here. Y'all, I don't know. You're familiar with Amos 519? You know what it talks about in Amos 5.19? God's saying there's going to come a time that he's going to judge Israel and for their sins. And he says, it's going to be like this. He says, you're going to be like somebody that is running from a lion. And you think you got away from him. And you look, and there's a bear. And then you run home and you got away from the bear. And you get inside your house and you think everything's okay. Oh, man. And then there's a snake where you put your hand and it bites you. So you think you got away from one thing and here comes another one and it's, it's after you.
And that's kind of like what happens. That's what it's like for David. He escapes that one dire situation in that battle that was going to take place just to find himself in another when he comes back to Ziglag. And life is like that, isn't it? It really is. Sometimes a day is like that. You think you got through one trial and God's grace got you through it and you're like this. You know, maybe work wasn't going good, but your work situation somehow worked out. And then you get home and you got a bigger problem facing you. I mean, sometimes it's just like that. Sometimes it's a day. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's a month. Sometimes your year can go like that. But praise God. He does never lead his children into permanent disasters. All through this whole story, he is in total control. If it's a result of chastisement because of a backslidden condition or God is just trying to do a deep work of humility in your lives, here's what the message is tonight. That can happen. But he is going to lead you on the road to recovery, the road to restoration. That's the title of the message, the road to recovery. You know, one time I had a painting job I was doing. For these people and it wasn't going too great these people are like really hard to work for I'm struggling to make any money on the job and I'm nearing the end of the job nearing the end of the day I'm caulking this crown molding in this room and everything they have is like super expensive and super nice and I'm literally I get to my last stretch of caulking and I'm thinking to myself this is great I'm just about done with this day. I'm just about done with this job. And the caulking gun slips out of my hand. And as I go to grab it, I knock it. I had everything moved, but I happened to knock it into something. Then it went flying and hits this really nice end table and puts this deep gouge in that thing. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I just wiped my brow and thought it was all over with. I'm looking at this now. I thought, I'm going to have to offer to buy this table. I'm thinking, this table is going to cost more than I made on this job. God has his road to recovery. And the road for me was down Highway 60. And there's a guy that's got a little shop down underneath there. It's called the Restoration Workshop. (laughs) And I took it in to John. I said, John, what can you do with this? And he said, just leave it with me. You know how John is. Just leave it with me. I'll take care of it. I'm like, okay, John. (laughs) I don't know what you could do with this. And what was it? Just a couple days later, he calls me up because it's all taken care of. I said, it's all taken care of. Okay. I don't remember, John. I don't know if you charged me nothing, 10 bucks. I mean, it was like next to nothing. I'd have given him 100. It would have been cheaper than that table would have been. But anyways, you couldn't tell what happened. Total restoration. And that's what God does. That is his grace. It worked that way for me. What I want to look at first is where does God's road to recovery begin? Because it doesn't begin at the top. It's like we talked about the other day. It begins at the bottom. Ziglag burning is the beginning of David's recovery. And look what it says. So David and his men came to the city. It was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters were taken captives. And David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives. He names them and it says, And David, verse 6, was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved and bittered. Why? Every man for his sons and for his daughters. Who was responsible for the burning of Ziklag? You would say, well, it's those evil Amalekites, those children of the devil. It's a work of the devil. Well, yeah, that's true on one level. But we know that God can use 
the devil's children as a rod of chastisement to wake us up or as a tool. Sometimes they're just a tool to test our faith, to refine our faith. But either way, it's called chastisement. Do you all understand chastisement doesn't necessarily mean you've sinned and you're being punished. It can also just mean training. Sometimes don't you just train your children? They're not necessarily haven't done anything wrong, but you got to exercise them and making their bed or whatever. You need to make your bed. You need to discipline them to do that, whatever it is. And David's looking at the loss of everything he held dear. It's not so much his home that bothered him. He could build another home. But what was dear to him? It was his wives, his sons and his daughters. And they were gone. And David didn't know they could have been gone forever, couldn't they? He didn't know. Now, we knew the story. But why? Why was that allowed to happen? Because God was primarily trying to regain David's heart. Trying to regain his heart. Because he'd allowed his heart to grow cold to the Lord. Because remember, that's why I read that verse out of chapter 27. He didn't seek the Lord but when he needed direction, what did he do? He's seeking himself. He's asking himself, his own heart, what should I do? Whenever we prize or cherish the gifts more than the giver, God will take the gifts away. He'll allow them maybe to fall into the hands of the enemy for a season. Or your material things might burn. All their material things were burnt up. So if your money's your idol, and if you're God's child, it may be that your pockets, your bags, so to speak, your bank accounts will all have holes in them. You might be pouring a lot in there and thinking you're good, but there's really nothing left in the end. And then we know that happens. We know Malachi talks about that. And that's just kind of one of the ways God deals with his children. When I go into the penitentiary there at KSR, I don't know how many times I've heard it from prisoners that they said, before I got here, I heard this multiple times. I had it all. I had drugs. I had money. I had a nice house. They would say, in one day, literally, I lost it all. And they would say, thankfully, that is the way God got my attention. So he allowed that to happen to them to regain their heart, just like it's happening here with David and his men. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe on a smaller scale? And we don't always have to lose everything for God to get our attention. And you can look at that if things seem to happen to you in a day, a week, a month, or a year, or whatever. You can look at that in two ways. You could be like, why does everything always seem to fall apart in my life? I'm not blessed like other people. Maybe God hates me. Maybe he doesn't like me. Or you could say God in his love has brought me to rock bottom. No other way to get my attention. There is no child in his right mind that is going to call a good whipping love. That isn't the way it works. Until later. I'm telling my kids, I absolutely hated my mom. Mainly my mom. Because she was the stricter of the two. But I didn't like my parents at all when I was a teenager. Because they would tell me no. They would send me to my room. My mom says, you're going to go up. You talk to me like that. You're going to go up in your room. You're not coming out until you apologize. And I'll be like, well, I'll rot in my room then. And up there, I'd be there long enough. I'd think, well, who's the idiot here? It's not, she's doing whatever she wants to. I'm stuck in this room. And all I got to say is, I'm sorry, mom. And I'm free. Okay. So I'd suck it up and do that. But my whole thing was, my mom got older and my dad. And I got on the other side and became a Christian. 
My parents weren't Christian, but they didn't just let me do pretty much what I wanted. I thanked them. I don't know how many times. I thank you so much for the way you guys raised us, whatever you did to discipline us and all that. And that's the way it works out. Put something there. Turn back to Hebrews 12. I want to just look at that. I need to look at this section here every now and then. So look what it says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son or daughter, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he does what? He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But, he says, if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, that is, all of God's children's partake of chastisement, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. And shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But God does it for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. And look what it says here in verse 11. Now, no, that means none, N-O, chastening for the present seems to be joyous. That means none of it, when you're going through it, is ever joyous, period. But grievous. Nevertheless, he says, afterward, when it's done, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Therefore, he says, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather, he says, be healed. If you enjoy pain, we need to have a counseling session after this is over. Nobody likes to have pain. Nobody likes it. In verse 11, it says, no chastening for the present while you're going through it. None of it, no matter for what reason, none of it is enjoyable, but rather grievous. When chastisement, like it did for David here, comes through your family, that is the most painful and causes the deepest grief. It does. It talks about the wives and the children. Look how many times it's mentioned almost every verse. If you go back to 1 Samuel 30, look at this. Almost every verse, verse 2. And they had taken the women captives. Look what it says in verse 3. So David and his men came to the city and behold, burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters were taken captive. Verse 5, David's two wives were taken captives. And verse 6, David was greatly distressed. For the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Why? Every man. Why? For his sons and for his daughters. The children, that is what's going to get David stoned. Is These people are so distressed and embittered. They're blaming him for what? They don't care about the city. They're saying the loss of our children. That's hard. And what else can bring down a parent's heart? But the loss of a child, either physically or spiritually, because these guys are war hardened men here, hardcore guys, and they could take the loss of a house or a spear or a horse or their clothes. But their children and their wives, it says they all gave up a bitter cry, a bitter cry. There's many stories in the Bible 
were children. We're talking about the enemy comes in, just like the Amalekites. Many, many stories where the children are attacked and spoiled by the enemy, the devil, and taken captive. And it brings pain and distress to a parent's heart. That's the way it is. Jairus in Mark 5, he came to Jesus and he sees Jesus. This guy's the ruler of the synagogue. He's no small person. And Jesus, in a sense, is a nobody. And it says that he fell down at his feet, fell down at the Lord's feet. And it says he begged him earnestly. It's his daughter, my little girl, he says to Jesus. My little daughter is dying. And would you please just come and lay your hands on her? Please, he says, that she may be healed and live. The Syrophoenician came to Jesus and it says she cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me. It's hurting me because my daughter is grievously tormented by a devil. I have to watch this all the time. It's, it's killing me, so to speak, what's going on with my daughter. And we talked about many times the man with the epileptic boy pleading with Jesus. If you can do anything, Lord, have compassion on us and help us, him and the boy. And Jesus answered, if I can do anything, all things are possible to him that believeth. And then it says this, immediately the father of the child cried out and it says, and with tears. I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Why is he crying out for tears? Not for him. It's just he is crying out. He wants to see his son delivered so bad. What he sees, he goes through. Oft times he's cast into the fire. He just This is my son. And with tears, nothing else can affect a parent than seeing their child taken captive in any way. And when you hear the report, when David heard the report of his son Absalom's death, it was more than he could bear almost. If you would, your first Samuel, turn over to second Samuel. I like to look at what he says. 2 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 32, the very end of that chapter. 2 Samuel 18, 32, he gets the report from Cushai. And the king said unto Cushai, is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, well, the enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, well, let them be as that young man is. Oh. And what does it say? The king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went thus, thus, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And that is the heart of a godly parent for a wayward child. Or a child for a parent or one friend for another. Any loved one, I mean, that's the way it is. You're broken, broken in that way. You know, you remember that video we watched here one night a long time ago, several years ago, about Jim Cimbala? That was his precious daughter, and he's watching her running the streets of New York City, living the life of the prodigal, and it said it broke his heart. He said he wept, he begged her, he bribed her, he pleaded with her, and nothing changed. And he finally just had to put her in the Lord's hand. But he carried that burden, he said, everywhere he went. Couldn't hardly preach. Couldn't hardly shave. It's everywhere he went. God, though, did a work in him through that. 
That's only the beginning of the road to recovery. That's where it starts. That's where it started with David here. The loss of all David held dear to him produced, I believe, repentance and a seeking after God. That's what God brought him back to. He wasn't doing that before. The next thing, if you'll go back there to chapter 30, the road to recovery, like I said, it leads to seeking the Lord with all of our hearts. That's what we have here in verse 6 of chapter 30 of 2 Samuel. It says, when they were ready to stone him, every man was grieved for his sons and for his daughters. It says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. We were like, well, it says there that David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I think he was encouraged. He did encourage himself. But every other major translation that you're going to read, the New King James, the ESV, these are all the literal translations, not the wild ones. The NAU, the NIV, the YLT, Young's Literal Translation, and the NET, the major ones I look at, none of them use the word encourage. I don't have a problem with that. But they use the word strengthen is the way it's translated in every other version. David strengthened himself in the Lord. And I think that's key to understand that. NET says, but David drew strength from the Lord our God. And how did that come? I think David drew strength and encouragement from the Lord by waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. Psalm 27, 14, it says, we sing this song, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. And when you do that, he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31 says, they that wait upon the Lord shall do what? Renew their strength. Psalm 105 says, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. And I think David strengthened himself by seeking the Lord, by waiting on the Lord, by getting quiet before the Lord. And the first thing he had to do, look what it says back in that verse. It says, David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. And I think the first thing you have to do in a situation like that is to remember to, to remind yourself that God is my God. Because the devil will attack you that way. You have to say, that's a basic thing, isn't it? That sounds like really basic stuff. But you're going to tell me the devil doesn't try to attack you about whether you're saved or not, whether you're truly his child or not. David just came off of knowing that he's doing the wrong thing. God's dealing with him. He has to remind himself, hey, wait a minute. This may be chastisement or whatever, but I am his child. Got to get that settled. That's got to be first. And then God's dealing with his heart. When you wait before the Lord like that, troubles come your way and you get before the Lord. God will deal with your heart when that happens. It's a humbling thing. Talking to a brother about this. You know, you got this situation you're looking at here. If your heart's right, Jesus says you're going to get the speck out of your own eye, aren't you, before you get it out of someone else's. So you got this problem, but God's going to start dealing with you, isn't he? through a situation like that. And I think that's what he did with David. Instead of showing it all the places that they're missing it, he's showing David, look, this is where you're missing it. And that's what he does a lot of times. And that happens in all relationships where you have problems. You got problems? I heard Dr. Freeman say this one time, and I thought, I wish I hadn't heard you say this. But he was teaching on husband and wife relationships, and he said, you ever get into it with your wife? 
He said, you better be willing to put yourself down as low as it goes to get things right between you and your wife. Apologize, do whatever you have to do, but deal with yourself first. Don't put it on them first. I'm like, man, I wish I hadn't heard that. I heard that way, way long time ago. Don't know that I've always put it into practice, my wife might say, but that's the way it is. Deal with our hearts first. The other way I think that he encouraged or strengthened himself in the Lord by seeking the Lord is thinking on God's faithfulness in his life, on his promises, not only just to him personally when he waited on the Lord, but he reminded him of all the words that came through Samuel and Jonathan and all that. These things that are telling David, this is what God's going to do for you, and this is what he's done, and he's looking back and seeing how God has been faithful to him. And I've had to do that a lot of times. The devil will just try to really come at you and relentless, and I have to say, wait a minute here. What you're telling me about where I'm at now, how things are going, I've got to go back and think, wait a minute, i got this, this, and this that happened. Say what you will. I may have to get some things straightened out, but God is my God, and he's been faithful to me. And I think he's done that to a lot of us here, giving us encouraging words through the years to get you through, let you know that you're his, whether it's through a message from a brother reading the Bible. But I also think that he would have given David this promise. He would have maybe known this. And if you would turn back to Deuteronomy 30. And what does it say there? Deuteronomy 30. And it says, and it shall come to pass, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, wherein I have set before thee, and you shall call into mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God has driven you. So he's talking to people that are in a nation they shouldn't be. God sent them away. And he says this, and you shall return unto the Lord thy God and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will do what? He'll turn thy captivity and have compassion on thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. And if any of thine be driven out unto the unmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring you into the land which thy fathers possessed. You shall possess it, and he will do you good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And look at this, verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy children. Now that's a promise there. It is for me. He'll do that to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. He says, your children, they'll be doing that and you will too. All thine heart with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee which persecute thee. And you shall return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make you plenteous in every work of thine hand and the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If you will hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments, his statutes, which are written in the book of the law. If you will turn to the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. So it sounds to me like you do that and you recover all. Amen. Isn't that what it's talking about there? 
Back to 1 Samuel, David took a general promise. He's in a land, things have been taken captive, his kids have been taken captive, he's in trouble. Turn back to the Lord with all his heart, and God says, I will give you back everything. So God took that general promise, that's a general promise of restoration, and gave David those specific direction and wisdom. Because we can claim a general promise of healing, but how to act that out, what we need to do, we need to have wisdom and direction from the Lord, right? From the Holy Spirit. That's the way it is. Look what happened. That's what he did. Look in verses 7 and 8. David's back to seeking the Lord. He should have done verse 7 and 8 clear back in chapter 27, verse 1, and saved himself a lot of problems. But God's done a work in his heart. He's back to seeking the Lord. And he said to Abiathar the priest, verse 7, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Like I said, we can have a general promise that we can claim, whether it's healing, household salvation, about our business prospering, but we need the wisdom of God's timing, direction, and we need to have his providence come in our lives to be directing us to the right people that are going to tell us the right things or the right doors to open or the right doors to close. And that is so critical. You got a situation, whatever this is, you may need to do something and you may need to not do something. And praying and seeking the Lord is critical to know what to do. And through all that, you have to be willing. We're back to wait on the Lord for his leading and his direction and not to get in the flesh. That's all part of it. Bevington, listen, out of his book, I have this. He's going to start a meeting in Ohio. This guy asked him, a lumberman, a businessman, he wants him to come start a meeting. Says to Bevington, you ought to hold a meeting down where I live. And Bevington asked him, well, well, sir, where do you live? And he goes, I live 20 miles from here. So Bevington, he didn't just say, okay, I'm going to have anything going on. He said, I prayed over it, and I felt somewhat inclined to give the matter further consideration. And Bevington said, I asked him the name of the leaders, and he gave me two. And he said, then after the meeting was closed where I was, I went to the woods to get the mind of God and was impressed to go. So he's impressed to go to this meeting, but he didn't stop there. But as I seem to be running up against some pretty hard problems in this hollow log, gotten in a log, he said, I concluded to wait longer before God so as to be definite and sure. He says, I spent 48 hours longer in this commodious hotel. That's quite a way of putting it, isn't it? The hollow log, he said, making 120 hours of getting things straight from headquarters. Amen. Amen. I'm like 120 hours. I don't know that I've prayed 12 hours straight about anything getting direction. 120 hours getting things straight from headquarters. And he says, I tell you, it pays to know what we are doing when it comes to dealing with God or minding him. And I have this like double underline in my Bevington book. I have for years. He says this, that is where the trouble is with so many. They jump at conclusions when they should go slow. Brother Knapp taught that nine times out of every ten we get our impressions from Satan. So we need to wait, get still, and get where God can actually talk to us.
So I searched the mind of God and he gave me the clear assurance that he wanted me to go to this place. And you're saying, how did that all work out? Read the book, because that's all I'm going to read to you right now. But the point is, he waited on the Lord. He had a promise, but he waited and got clear direction from the Lord. And it took some time. Now, I don't say God's got to, got to be 120 hours in a hollow log before we'll know what to do. But I think he's right about you got things that you need to know how to deal with a problem. Then David did here. He didn't know what to do. And had to seek the mind of the Lord. But the third thing I want to see here in 1 Samuel 30 is the one constant in all of this is that we must fight. This is what I really want to hone in on. Because our enemy, in case you haven't figured that out yet, he will never surrender. He doesn't surrender. And if we don't fight for our spiritual possessions, whatever they are, it's your family, your children, your marriage... He is not going to let go. That is our responsibility. He had the word from God in verse 8, pursue, and look what he does. In verse 9, David went, he and the 600 men that were with him came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed, and David pursued, verse 10, he and 400 men, for 200 abode behind, which were so faint they could not go over the brook Besor. He didn't just rest on the promise, did he, that he was going to recover all? Because within that promise, what's the first thing he's told to do? Pursue. He said, David, you and your men have to take up arms and relentlessly pursue. When the enemy attacks and is trying to steal what we have, or he already has taken it, what is our recourse? What's the word to us? It is pursue. And how do we do that? How do we pursue? Through prayer. That's how the early church always fought the powers of darkness. Peter and John are arrested. The first thing they do, their first recourse is when they're arrested and put in jail and threatened to pray, isn't it? And when Peter, we're talking about the enemy, takes someone captive. Peter was taken captive. How was he recovered? How did they pursue after him to recover him? Through prayer, right? Acts chapter 12 and the parable of the unjust judge. What was going on in that parable that Jesus told about the unjust judge? A widow has been taken advantage of by an adversary. Someone's taken and stolen what was hers. And she wants justice from the judge. And she says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I am pursuing you relentlessly until you restore what is mine. That's the way it was. Jesus tells us the reason he gave that parable is, he said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. What is he saying there? You need to pursue what is yours like she did in prayer and never give up. In other words, fight. Fight. And that verse we talked about several weeks ago, a couple Wednesdays ago, 2 Chronicles 7.14, God is talking that about this is what you do when the enemy has come in and has taken what is yours. The locust. That's the enemy. Pestilence. A drought. He's saying anyone, when those problems come in and the enemy has invaded your life, your family, your spiritual life, he's saying anybody that will seek the Lord and put him first, God's answer is never It's never just claim the promise and let it go. 
I say never. Sometimes you just claim to promise, forget it, and God. But generally, sometimes you have got to fight. Something we have to do. The big if. He's saying these problems have come in. The enemy has come into your life in these ways. And he says, you want to know what the answer is? Said it last week. If my people, that's what's happened. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's our responsibility. And then, like with David, he said, pursue and you will recover all. You do what I say in 2 Chronicles 714 and you will recover all. Whatever the enemy has taken captain that is your God-given right, we have to actively pursue in prayer. Like I said, whether it's this church, whether it's our children, whether it's our joy, whether it's your marriage, deliverance from demonic oppression, God's word is to us like it was to David. Pursue and don't let up until you have recovered all. Don't be satisfied with a partial recovery. What was God's promise to David? Look in verse 8. He said, pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them and without fail recover all. There's nothing partial about that, is there? Nothing partial about that whatsoever. And when we do that, when we obey him in our pursuit, his divine providence, God's sovereign divine providence will give us direction and encouragement. Because David and his men, they pursued they obeyed. They had no idea where they were going. They didn't because the Amalekites could have been anywhere. They just did what God said. They set out and they pursued in obedience, trusting that the Lord would lead and direct them. And that principle they got from their spiritual father, Abraham. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went. He didn't know. And that's what God tells us to do. He's saying, hey, we need to start venturing out into unknown territory in obedience. Sharing the gospel, moving in the gifts, praying, whatever. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all of thy ways acknowledge him. And what does he say? He shall direct thy paths. And as David and his men obeyed that command, as they took that step out, God didn't just leave them wandering around aimlessly. He won't do that to you if you obey him. He sovereignly led them to whom? An Egyptian, a half dead laying in a field Egyptian. That was God because the Amalekites were nomads, the ones that had taken it. They could have gone anywhere. They didn't have a certain place they were headed to. They could have gone anywhere, any direction. But the grace of God leads them to this Egyptian, takes them right to him. The one that the compassionate Amalekite servant master had left for dead. A lot of compassion there. But David, he's got a heart like God, doesn't he? He feeds him. He's revived. And what does he do? leads them to their families and their goods. And so David recovered all. But could he take any credit for that? From beginning to end, who was the one that was responsible for him recovering all? God, that's just like with us. There's a kingdom that he's telling us to pursue. 
and that we can partake of now and in the future. The kingdom we have to pursue after, but we're going to get it. And the fact that we even have a kingdom to take is solely from the grace of God. That we even have one to go after from beginning to end. God's grace, his goodness, and his love to us. That's the way it is. And he had to suffer and pay a price for us to have that, to be able to pursue after, to be able to recover all. It cost him everything. And so we should pursue for his sake, shouldn't we? And not leave anything behind. He's provided healing, household salvation, gifts in our church, and tells us to pursue them, the gifts. Covet earnestly, he says, the best gifts. And that covet earnestly means you're intensely interested in something. You're going after it. You're pursuing it. Why? Because he tells us in the next chapter after that, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church because our church needs to be built up in a lot of different ways. And if we don't seek, if we don't pursue, guess what won't happen? It's dependent on us, isn't it? We've got to be obedient. All of those things that I just mentioned, healing, household salvation, gifts, and you could go on and on and on, are the benefits of the kingdom of God. And here's what Jesus said. So I'm saying we've got to fight. And Jesus said, if you want the benefits of the kingdom of God, you have to press into it if you want to experience it. Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John. And he says, since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. And every man, he says, presses into it. Matthew eleven twelve, the same verse says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. That's what David and them did, didn't they? He wasn't going to just lay it in their lap. Like the enemies come in and robbed you guys. Now you want it back, David. You got your heart right back with me. Now you take up your arms and pursue. And you do that. And God says, I guarantee you, I will give everything back that was taken. That you're going to have a fight on your hands. And that's all of us in here. If we're going to make it in. They had to pursue. They had to fight. And it was a great effort. That wasn't some minor skirmish they had, but I'm telling you, it was worth it, wasn't it? So we're still there in Samuel 30. Look at verses 16 to 19. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad. The Egyptian brought David down. Here he sees the Amalekites partying with his women and all of his stuff. And behold, they're spread abroad upon all the earth, eating, drinking, dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And here was the fight. And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. There escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men who rode camels and fled. And it says in verse 18 that David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was lacking, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all, but not without a fight. He had to pursue and he had to fight. So let me say this. So I believe that many responded when the Lord gave the call two weeks ago about seeking him and praying and fasting. And I think we really experienced that in a real way on Sunday. His presence was here like it has not been here in a long time. 
I wouldn't consider that recovering all, though. I would consider personally that a partial recovery, even though it was a blessing to me. And I got a lot of people sending me text, emails, whatever, about how much of the meeting that was all independently. This isn't something we all talked about. I'm saying God was obviously here. And he hadn't been here like that for quite a while. That's what I'm saying is to encourage us that, hey, if we'll do what he says and seek him, put him first and go after it and not let up, not just let up. Well, we had a good meeting and that's like the end of it. No, I'm telling you, that call to pray and fast and seek God, that is not just a one time thing. If we're going to make it that way, guess what? We'll slide right back where we were. That has got to be a way of life for us. And we need to be praying for things in this church until we have not only recover all. David not only recovered all he lost, he recovered all and then some. And what I want to say about that is <laughs> the then some, you know what he did with the then some? He shared it with others. He sent gifts to all the people. This is the spoil God has given me. And I want to share it with you all. When we get back to where God wants us to be, he'll not only give us back our joy and where we should be, but it should be flowing out of us and out of this place to others. That's the principle. Jesus says this, he that believeth on me, as the scriptures has said, out of his belly, when you receive the spirit shall flow rivers of living water. They're flowing out, not flowing in, are they? They flow in, they get to be stagnant. They need to be flowing out. But you have to recover all and be filled before you can be overflowing, don't you? And that's what we need to keep pressing in for. Keep pressing in. Pursue. Not time to quit. I'll let you know when we've recovered all and then some and y'all can back back up a little bit, all right? I'll be the first to let you know. I promise. Amen? Let's keep pressing in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words you've given us, the example in the life of David to show us how you operate, Lord. And it may be we've been brought into a bad way and it may be in our family, our marriage, in our church, Lord. But you say if we'll put you first, that principle is there everywhere in your word. If we'll seek you and put you first and meditate on your promises, Lord, that your word to us will be pursue. And you surely shall recover all without fail. And we know, Lord, that when you promise something, you are a God of integrity. You will not lie to us. And if we'll put into practice what you say, we can experience your presence and your blessings here and in our lives. And I thank you for that. And I ask you'll impress that in all of our hearts in a big way. And we pray that in Jesus name. Amen.